I'm going to pray uh, for our time together this morning before we get into our passage. Let's pray. Father, we need you this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word. I pray that you would give me great clarity. Um, I pray that the folks listening would understand exactly what your word calls us to and why your word calls us to this. And I pray that our, our minds would be renewed by the view of reality that comes from your word and from you. Shape the way we think this morning. Shape the way we act this morning. Help us to love you more and help us to love one another more. Thank you for the gift of our time together. Be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. You can open up to Galatians chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Galatians 6. Maybe one of the most difficult things for my family in moving to Michigan has been the absence of a Chick-fil-A nearby. We have to drive to Toledo to, we like Toledo. We like, we like Toledo, we're in favor of Toledo, it's not a burden, but we have to drive to Toledo in order to experience the delectable goodness of waffle fries and fried chicken and Chick-fil-A sauce. So we've loved Chick-fil-A for a long time, as good Christians do. I'm just kidding. For a whole host of reasons. But recently, I don't know if you saw this news story, but our respect and love for the company was increased another level. There was this story that came out of a Chick-fil-A in Atlanta where a mother had her young son in the car in the back seat and she pulled into the parking lot and he somehow had gotten the seatbelt wrapped around his neck and it was tightening and his oxygen was getting cut off and she pulled up and I don't know if she was screaming out of her window, but um, an, an employee in the Chick-fil-A, a teenager, uh, saw this going on and you can actually watch the security camera footage and he jumps out of the drive-through window and runs over to the car and you know, gets into the car, she, the mom doesn't know what to do, and he had a pocket knife in his pocket, and he pulled it out and was able to cut the, uh, the seatbelt and save the kid's life. He said the kid was turning different colors, like it was really a, um, a life-threatening situation. Uh, the kid's name was Logan. Um, so, of course, you know, it's a great story. Um, <laughs> my favorite part is Logan went home, he's probably 16 or 17, and his mom said that he came home from work that day and didn't say anything to her. And after being home for a couple hours, just doing whatever he was doing around the house, he casually mentions to her, hey mom, I saved a kid's life today. <laughs> She's like, okay, what happened, you know, and got the story from him. And uh, it, of course it went viral, it blew up, it's all over the internet, there's news stories about it and everything like that. And um, it's, it's a great story. He really did save the kid's life and um, took immediate action and was quick on his feet and was very helpful to this family. And everybody loves that story. It's all over the internet. Great story. We love the story of when someone physically is rescued from, from physical harm. But what's a little bit more difficult for us to handle is when 
believers try to rescue someone spiritually from spiritual harm. And we, we try to help someone to see their sin and to see how damaging it can be. And when, when someone starts doing that, now, hey, don't get too judgy. I, I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. Why don't you take care of yourself and I'll take care of me? And what are you doing? You're getting intrusive into, into my life. And that's something we don't, we don't handle very well. And we, we certainly don't want to do that to try to help other believers. And the reality is that sometimes Christians, each one of us, get caught in sin the same way that that little boy had the seatbelt wrapped around his neck. And we can't free ourselves. We need someone else to step in and to rescue us from that circumstance and to help us to get the stranglehold of sin off of our, our lives. We can't do it ourselves. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. We're going to move in this series, if you've been with us, we're in this series, Fight for Your Life. We're talking about the fight against sin, and we started with three weeks in that center circle there, personal, the personal fight against sin, and now we're moving, we're going to do this week on the relational fight against sin, how we need one another to help us in this fight against sin. And then the next two weeks, we'll be in Matthew 18, and we're going to be dealing with the communal fight against sin. What are our responsibilities as a church body? in addressing sin and and dealing with sin. But the point of this week is we cannot engage this fight alone. You can't stay in that center circle and think that you you can win this battle on your own and you can participate in this fight on your own. We need one another if we are to effectively put sin to death in our lives and fight against sin. And so I wanna wanna help you to see that this morning from Galatians chapter six. So if you're there, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3, which is where we'll be this morning, and then we'll talk about what we're going to see there. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For... If anyone thinks he is, he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So in these verses this morning, we're going to see five actions necessary to rescue a fellow believer from sin. Five actions necessary to rescue a fellow believer from sin or to make a rescue attempt. The first one of these is we have to accept the need for this type of rescue attempt, for this type of action. This is really one of my major goals this morning from this passage. I realize this is probably new to, to many of you, to some of you. You never thought this way before. But this passage calls us to a rescue attempts. And I want to help you to see that need and to feel that need in your relationships with other believers this morning. We, each one of us, we require other people sometimes to help us identify sinful patterns in our lives. We need other people's help in this. And when I talk about that, I'm sure some of you automatically recoil from this, right? It's not comfortable to think about this type of action. It's intrusive. 
It seems abrupt. It seems judgmental. But what I would ask you this morning is let your mind be renewed by the Scriptures and think biblically about what to do and how to do it and how to approach this. And our goal this morning is to think from a biblical perspective rather than a worldly perspective on how we approach sin with other believers. So you can see in verse 1 here, Paul begins this section by calling them brothers. Right? That's a term of affection. He's using this designation to say that they are in a joint effort together. They're part of the same family with him. He's used this name for them over and over again in the book of Galatians. If you look back through the book, you can see him consistently calling them brothers. And he tends to call them brothers when he's about to approach a new subject or make a really important statement to them. And so I think that's what he's doing here. He's, he's calling them this in order to draw their attention in and highlight an important point, an important command that he's going to give to them. He wants them to know, listen, in all of this, you are in this together. You guys are walking this road side by side, and you are responsible for each other. Brothers, you need one another. And here he's saying you are responsible for one another as family members in a specific circumstance. Look at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. The circumstance that he's calling them to identify is if a brother, fellow believer, is caught in a transgression. Well, we know what a transgression is, right? A transgression is a sin. It's a violation of God's law. But what does it mean to be caught in a transgression? Well, the word caught here gives us the idea of an animal being caught in a, wild, in a trap out in the wild. The animal is walking along, minding its own business when it is surprised by this trap and it is held fast by this trap. Now, the implication here is, in this passage with Paul, is the, the believer who is caught in this transgression is a fellow brother or sister in Christ, and they don't want to be or shouldn't want to be caught in this particular sin, in this trap that has been set. They don't want to be there, but they've been snared by this sin. It has overtaken them. It has control of them, and they need another believer to help extricate them from the trap, from being caught here. They can't do it themselves. They're unable to. They need someone else to help. And the reality is, is this is going to happen to each one of us from time to time. This is the nature of life, the Christian life in a fallen world. You cannot imagine that you will never be in need of help from another believer to deal with sin in your life. I mean, remember the beginning of this whole series, Genesis 4 and verse 7. Remember what God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The point here is that God says human beings are going to have an adversarial relationship with sin. Its desire is to destroy us, and there are going to be times where we get snared as believers by sin. We're not enslaved to its power anymore. We have freedom in Christ. 
to walk in obedience, but the flesh still hangs on, and there will be times where we get caught in a sin. We need allies. That's his point here. You need an ally. You need a group of allies. And who are these allies? Look at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual. Those are the allies. Now, I know when you read this, you are spiritual. You think, and I, I tend to think too, when you first read this, that it sounds like a spiritual person is someone who's very devout and very pious and very holy. And you think, I am not spiritual. <laughs> I am not this person. He's not describing me here because I struggle. And I don't do things correctly very often at all. But in reality, that's not how Paul's using this word here, you who are spiritual. In reality, what he's saying is this is any person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you who are under the power and have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Really, he's just describing every follower of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? We'll look back two verses in chapter, in chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, it's the same word there, the Spirit, spiritual, someone who is living by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The people who live by the Spirit, who have life in Christ by the Spirit, are the spiritual ones of verse 1, of chapter 6, verse 1. They've received freedom in Christ, now they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so what's happening here in Galatians, Paul is describing this incredible change that has taken place. These people have been moved from one kingdom to another kingdom through the coming and the work of Jesus Christ. And as that new age has dawned, the Holy Spirit has come in. He indwells believers. They are empowered by him, and they're no longer enslaved to the flesh. Look back a little bit further to chapter 5 and verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There will be conflict, but the point is, is that those who are alive by the Spirit now are empowered for this fight. They're free. And this freedom that they have means that they should serve other believers. Look back further in chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Those who are saved, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who live by the Spirit, because the Spirit's at work in them, they want to serve others, and they look outward and try to help others. Now, what does sin want us to do? Sin wants us to turn inward on ourselves, and sin wants us to focus internally rather than outward to helping others, and sin wants us to only think about self. Think about that animal in the trap. That animal, the only way for it to get out is it needs someone to help it out and to free it. Left to fend for itself, left alone, it will die in that trap. And that's exactly what sin wants to do to us, to cut us off from others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, and I thought this was so helpful. 
Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. You think about that. When someone begins to pursue a life of sin who's been involved in the church, what do they normally do? They start to pull away. They start to cut off relationships with people. They start to isolate themselves. And what they need in that moment is not isolation. They need a brother and a sister to come after them. Those who are spiritual, who have the spirit dwelling inside of them, to help them to extricate themselves from that trap. So what specifically do we do to help? This is our second action necessary. Accept the need. I want you to feel the need for this. It is a vital part of what we do as believers in Christ. What specifically do we do? We aim for restoration. Here's the goal. Look at the rest of verse, actually not the rest, but the next part of verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. The aim, the goal here, the mission is restoration. So what does restoration involve? What are we actually doing and what are we actually shooting for when we know we have a brother or sister who's caught in a trap of sin. Well, the word restoration means to make whole again. It's used in the Gospels of the disciples mending their nets. So if you can imagine being a fisherman in the Sea of Galilee and you're casting your net out, and if your net has a giant hole in it, fishing is not gonna go very well for you. And so you can read in the Gospels about the disciples pulling their nets off onto the shore and they're mending their nets. They're making them whole again so that they function properly and do what they were designed to do. Another way to think of this is a dislocated bone being put back into joint to make the person whole again, resetting a dislocated joint. But here's the thing about mending the nets or resetting a broken bone or a dislocated joint. The person who has the problem has to know that there's an issue there. They have to know that there's a problem. They have to be made aware that something is going on, that they have been caught in the trap. And sin is so deceitful and so subtle that sometimes we don't even recognize when we've been ensnared by sin. And so sometimes you and I need another brother or sister to come along and very graciously, very kindly say to us, listen, I've seen a pattern developing in your life and I want to ask you about it because I'm concerned. To try to help them to see that something needs to be made whole again. Something in your life needs to be repented of. And you need to have your dislocated joint put back in place. And I want to help you to see that. Now, let me clarify what we're talking about here, okay? There's a couple of, I guess, caveats is the right way to say this. This is not a call to nitpick every misdeed that any other believer ever does, all right? That's not what this is calling us to. Every time you're aware of any sin, no matter how small, no matter how temporary, you go and you confront the person on that sin. That's not what this is calling us to here. 
The Bible has a wonderful way of giving us commands that at first glance seem to be contradictory to one another. So you've got this command here to help one another with sin and to confront and restore, but then you've also got this command in 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, love lets it slide. Love isn't nitpicky on every single thing that happens. Another in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Just let it go. So you've got both of these here. Restore a brother who needs to be put back together and made whole again. And you've also got this. His glory is to overlook an offense. So how do we reconcile these commands? And this is the beauty of the scriptures is it gives us these commands and we have to put them together and think about them and ponder them and then make specific application. And it's helpful to talk about these things with one another on how to apply these things. This is where Christian wisdom comes into play. This is where it matters the type of person that you are, and it matters how you're engaging with the Scriptures so that you can discern what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We need the discernment that comes from walking with the Lord, but I'll give you some general guidelines for this to try to help. In general, Galatians 6 is talking about persistent, habitual sins or very obvious incidents that happen one time that need to be addressed because the person is in particular danger. Or it's so obvious that it has to be dealt with because it was done in a public way or whatever the situation is. It's so obvious that it could turn into something that's persistent and habitual. Maybe the person is unaware of their sin and they're engaged with it in a habitual manner. It's it's persistence and they need to return from it and need to repent from it and they need to be made aware of it. So think of it this way. If you are riding in the car with me and I tend to go a little over the speed limit and I tend to do rolling stops at stop signs, I would hope that every time that that happens, you would not confront me on it and point it out to me. But if I'm driving 100 miles per hour down I-75 on the wrong side of the freeway, I would hope that you would not sit in the car with me and you would not go, eh, it's his life. He can do what he wants with it. I would hope that you would have the biblical discernment to say, I'm not going to let love cover here because they are in danger. They are caught. They're not aware of it. And it's leading them to a place that will be detrimental to them and damaging to them and to others. So we need wisdom here, but I think there are some general guidelines for this. So it's not a call to nitpick. It is a call to be concerned for others when you see them going in a direction that will be damaging. But it's also not a call to confront people over areas of Christian liberty or minor disagreement, all right? If you're on a crusade to convince everyone to do the schooling choice that you do and you're confronting people about the ways that they're different than you and where you send your kids to school, that's not this passage. You're just causing division at that point. 
This passage tells us that this person is caught in a transgression. It is a sin. It's something damaging to their soul that is very clearly in violation of the Scriptures. Let me show you an example of this that's in the book of Galatians. Flip back to Galatians chapter 2. This is wonderful, very, very helpful to us, I think. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, so this is Peter, Apostle Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So there is a time and a situation where one believer has to confront another believer in their sin and has to point it out to them. What was the situation here? He explains it, verse 12. For before certain men came from James, so James is a key apostle in Jerusalem, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, the people from Jerusalem, the Jews, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party or fearing the Jews, fearing what they would think about this. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter was claiming to believe in the gospel of grace and that the law was not necessary for the Gentiles to obey this. He was claiming to say this and was claiming to believe this, but then he was misrepresenting the gospel through his actions. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... There's the issue. Their conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul makes it quite clear here that Peter's actions were not congruent with the gospel of grace. Peter was in violation of of the implications of the gospel here, and so Paul confronted him in his sin. Now, one of the things that's so amazing about this passage is in verse 13, you can see the word hypocrite is used a couple of times here to describe the results of this, the actions that were being done. Now, it's amazing to me. One of the the things people say about the church, you'll hear this, right? The church is full of hypocrites. Well, in order for the church to not be filled with hypocrites, we have to deal with our sin so that we're not claiming Christ and claiming to be walking with Christ and then walking in sin. And so that we're not claiming to believe the gospel, but then our actions are not in line with the truth of the gospel. That's a hypocrite. And the amazing thing is that the hypocrisy spreads, right? Look at verse 13 again. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. It spreads to other people. And so when we don't deal with one another and help one another with habitual, persistent, obvious sins, and we let it go unchecked, I don't want to be judgmental. When we do that, we're allowing hypocrisy to take root in our church body, and we're allowing it to fester, and it will spread to other people. We can't allow one another to say one thing and live in the opposite way. 
If you profess to be a Christian and continue in unrepentant sin, you are acting like you are a hypocrite. I am too. The way to root out hypocrisy is to call one another to holiness, not to ignore sin. To ignore sin is to ensure that hypocrisy will run rampant in our church body. But when transgression is present, back in Galatians 6, the goal is restoration. So there's a way to hear what I'm saying and what Galatians is saying this morning and hear it as something that is is judgmental and is harsh. But the goal here is restoration. The goal is for that person to be made whole again. It's for the dislocated joint to be put back into place so that they can function properly. The goal is not to embarrass the other person. The goal is not to try to prove that you are on the moral high ground here and you've got everything right. The goal is restoration. And because of that, you and I have to approach one another with a particular disposition. And this is our third action here. So we accept the need for this. We aim for restoration to be made whole again. And then third, we acknowledge our own weaknesses. Look at the rest of verse 1. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Gentleness is the opposite of harshness. Gentleness is humility. It's meekness. This word gentleness is actually one of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul has just discussed in Galatians chapter 5. Look at, back at chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is one of the results of walking in the Spirit, of living by the Spirit. And gentleness is the disposition for this type of action because we have to all recognize that we are all sinners. We're all in the same boat. We recognize that I could be in that same situation, and I may be in that same situation at some point in the future. The rest of verse 1 puts this very, very clearly. Galatians 6, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And some of you are probably sitting here thinking, I could never talk to another believer about their sin because I am so sinful. I don't have it all together. If that's your attitude this morning, you are exactly the person who needs to talk to another believer about their sin. Because you are keeping a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Understanding your own sin and not letting it grow, but doing battle against your sin and understanding that you're capable of sin, that's one of the qualifications for this, this morning. You're exactly the right person to do this. Tim Keller put it this way, or actually 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is helpful before the Keller quote here, but no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, right? We're all tempted. We all have the same temptations and we should see this in one another. And then Keller says this, we won't be able to winsomely confront someone if we think we are not capable of similar or equal sin. There's nothing high and haughty about this at all. 
It's a disposition of gentleness and meekness. And so the answer is not to avoid talking to the other believer because you are sinful as well. The answer is to keep watch on yourself. To be vigilant in your own fight against sin and be focused on the other person and so focused on them that you want to help them. You want to see them made whole again. And being focused on the other person and wanting their good is just another way of describing loving another person. And that's our fourth action. We accept the need, aim for restoration, we acknowledge our own weaknesses, but then we assist in love. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The controlling reality in all of our relationships is the law of Christ. The law of Christ is love. Look back at chapter 5 and verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. Who fulfilled the law in his life and death? It was Jesus Christ, and he did it out of love. He's the definition of love. We're no longer under the Mosaic law, but now we're fulfilling the law of Christ, and the law or rule of Christ is the rule of love in us. Jesus is the paradigm for all of our relationships with one another. It's his self-sacrifice that gives us the example and the vision of what relationships amongst us should look like in the church body. Jesus said this in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, right? The same way Christ loves is the way we are to love, to extend that love out to one another. You also are to love one another. We emulate his self-sacrifice in a thousand different ways in our daily relationships. But love, oftentimes, when we see another brother or sister sin, is not the motivation that's there. Sometimes we're motivated, when we think about this, by fear. And we see another brother or sister sin, and we know they're going in the wrong direction, And we're afraid because we think, I don't want them to think badly of me. I'm afraid of what they will think. I'm afraid they will think I'm judgmental. I'm afraid I will talk to them about this in a gracious way, and they'll tell everyone else what a hypocrite I am and what a jerk I am. And so rather than being loving toward that person and concerned for that person's well-being, I'm concerned for myself, and I'm fearful of what will happen. Fear is the opposite of love. But sometimes it's not fear, sometimes it's anger that keeps us from helping one another in these situations. Sometimes we're motivated by anger. Someone sins against us, and rather than going back to them and talking to them about what had happened, we get angry, and then we go and talk to everybody else about it. We're definitely willing to talk to someone about it. It's just not the person who committed the sin. We're willing to talk to everyone else about it. And so rather than loving that person enough 
to talk to them. We hate them so much that we go and slander them behind their back and talk to everyone else about their sin, and we gossip. Do you see what so-and-so was doing? And then we add, you can pray for them on the end of it. Instead, what verse 2 tells us is that we should give up our fear and give up our anger and follow the example of Christ and respond in love. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The way we do this is by bearing one another's burdens. This means that this person has a, a heavy and oppressive load on his or her back, and they may not even know it. They may think they are doing fine, but you, as someone who is under the control of the Spirit, see how damaging this is to them. You see this burden that they are carrying. It weighs them down, and love compels you to go and talk to them about it. And what is necessary to bear their burden? If someone is carrying a huge backpack full of you know, weighted down items and they're struggling under the load of it, what is necessary to help them bear that burden is you have to draw close to them. You have to come alongside them. You have to get next to them. You have to be with them so that you can place your hand under the load as well and help them deal with it. So draw close to that person. Don't create distance from the one who is bearing a burden. That's exactly what sin wants us to do. Draw, draw back. Create distance. Ah, they're really struggling. I'm going to give them some space. No, come alongside them and help them bear this burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. And loving in this way means that we have to have the right viewpoint of ourselves. And this is our last action here. Assist in love in verse 2 and then assess your status, your own status, verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You can see here in verse 3, the first word is for. So Paul's giving us an explanation of how we can act in love. How do you prepare yourself to go and deal with this situation and talk to this person? How do we bear one another's burdens? We rightly assess ourselves. Who are we? Oh, we're those who've been saved by grace. We are servants of the King. We owe all that we are to Christ. We are nothing. We're His servants. We don't exist for our own glory, for our own pleasure. We exist for Him. He's made us. He has saved us. He's given us life. We're His servants. Romans 12 is helpful here, I think. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. But we do tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We tend to think, I am something. And when we think, I am something, I am important, when we're swelling up with pride, then we won't love. And we won't be able to humble ourselves and go and talk to someone about what's going on. We won't want to help that person with their burden because we're so focused on self and so concerned with self. In fact, when we think of ourselves as being someone 
And when we're filled with pride, we won't even notice the burdens that others are carrying because we're so self-consumed. And so instead, we have to honestly assess ourselves in light of the gospel. And we have to understand the rich resources that we have because of Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us. 2 Corinthians 8 9, I think, is helpful here too. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. For my sake he became poor. And when I dwell on this truth and in this reality, and when I sit and meditate on this and understand the great love and the humility of Christ and the condescension of him becoming a man and living an earthly life and becoming poor for my sake, when I reckon with the gospel, it changes the way I think, it changes the way I feel, it changes and renews my mind to think differently of other people. And then I want to be a help and a service to them in any way that I can, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard. So you've got five actions here to consider this morning. And these five actions are to help us know how to approach and how to rescue another believer from sin. And I want to end this morning by just one application point for you that will hopefully be helpful in helping you to get started in this if there's a situation that you need to deal with and you're aware of. I'm sure all of this sounds daunting and difficult and Maybe this is kind of new to you and you feel like you've been drinking out of a fire hydrant or a fire hose this morning and it's overwhelming and you're like, I don't even remember all five of the points right now. So, you know, this is too much for me at this point. I wouldn't even know how to begin this. I wouldn't know what words to say. I don't even know. Never done anything like this before. But I have a, I have a brother or sister I'm concerned about. And I, I do want to help them. I do love them. And maybe your perspective has just been altered enough this morning to see that as an act of love and not as a, a prideful thing to do. And so if that's true of you, here's what I would say to you. Get help. Go to one of the elders. Come to me. Talk to us about it. Express your concern. You don't have to say the person's name. You don't have to say what's going on, but just say, I need to talk to someone. And so come talk to us. That's what we're here for. This is literally part of my job. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4 says that pastors and elders equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is a work of ministry, right? Helping to relieve another believer of a burden of sin that they are carrying that is detrimental to them. That is the very definition of ministry. There's nothing that is more ministry-oriented than that. And so... Elders and pastors are here to equip you to do that work. And so I would just say, come talk to us. Let us help you. I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm not saying I can give you the perfect words to say. But I am saying that there's encouragement and there's help in this process by talking with someone about it, by praying about it with someone, by discussing these things. So that... We can bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. That's our goal. That's our mission. And this is one of the ways that we do this in the church body.
Let's pray. Father, these are heavy things that we're talking about this morning, and heavy things that we'll be getting into the next couple weeks as well. In our, in our natural state, we do not think this way. We do not see this as an act of love and help to another believer. But Lord, I pray that you would renew our minds so that we can cultivate a Christ-honoring community of believers here who pursue holiness and not let hypocrisy run rampant among us. Lord, I pray that we would have the wisdom to be able to know when to let love cover a multitude of sins, when to overlook an offense, and when to know that a person is in grave danger and they need someone to help them take the burden off and be freed from it so that they can walk in holiness and walk with Christ. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that for our sake you became poor so that we might become rich. We're so thankful for the gospel that compels us to love you and to love one another out of gratitude and joy for the new life that we have. Thank you for our time together this morning. Pray that Christ would be honored and glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen.